Neanderthals are perhaps some of the most familiar and popular of extinct humans, and as such, the knowledge we have of them, and their reputation among laypeople, has varied over the years. The first fossils were found in 1856 at the Fieldhofer Cave in the Neander Valley of Germany, and recognized as a new species in 1864, when the geologist William King coined the name Homo neanderthalensis. This makes them the first fossils of a non-Homo sapiens hominin ever found. Though, an earlier find in 1829 of a young Neanderthal from Belgium was only understood to belong to the species in 1936, which would make those remains the first ever found. Since 1864, other, more complete remains had been unearthed, and one particular find in 1908 really determined how Neanderthals would be viewed for the next few decades. At the cave site La Chapelle aux was found the skeleton of a Neanderthal man who was later revealed to have been a victim of osteoarthritis which gave them the appearance of a brutish and ape-like creature. Not realizing the illness present in the remains, the researchers who described the find depicted this Neanderthal, and thus all the others, as stupid, hunchbacked ape-men with barely any hint of culture or language. We now know, thanks to more recent findings, as well as the re-evaluation of older remains, that the Neanderthals were much more like us than we ever gave them credit for, which is why it is frustrating that this earlier image of Neanderthals as savage brutes still persists even today among laypeople. For starters, we recognize that Neanderthals are one of our closest relatives in the fossil record, having diverged from our lineage some 765 to 550,000 years ago. We have plenty of DNA evidence from Neanderthals, even as far as the entire genome of an individual, and by comparing it with the DNA of Homo sapiens populations, we see the sharp divide between the two species, where the ancestors of the Neanderthals branched off long before the population expansion of all Homo sapiens groups. Because of this, many researchers are confident that Homo neanderthalensis and Homo sapiens are two different species that share a common ancestor. Still others have looked at the similarities and gone as far as to place the Neanderthals as a subspecies of Homo sapiens, which would make them, technically, Homo sapiens neanderthalensis as opposed to our subspecies, which would be Homo sapiens sapiens. This is another instance of lumpers versus splitters, and again, it all boils down to what we define species as, a topic beyond the scope of this podcast. For the purposes of this show, I'll retain the Neanderthals as a separate species. As for the discussions surrounding interbreeding between our species and the Neanderthals that you may be familiar with, that's a topic I'll cover in the next episode. Neanderthals have been described as a European phenomenon, by anthropologist Richard Klein. This refers to the fact that the species evolved in Europe after their ancestral split from Africa. In Europe, they developed a number of anatomical traits which distinguished them from Homo sapiens, sporting all of their characteristic features by 250,000 years ago. Their cranial capacity was notably different, actually being larger than that of our species, averaging 92 cubic inches, compared to our average of 85.4 cubic inches though Neanderthals had more hindbrain than our fuller forebrain. They retained the jutting brow ridge and slightly projecting face of their ancestors. In fact, their nasal region was notably pronounced, suggesting the presence of a larger nose than we have. Neanderthals were very robust peoples, with enormous rib cages, arms, and legs. However, in comparison with Homo sapiens, they were a bit shorter, only growing as tall as 5 feet 6 inches, with shorter arms and legs. This combination of features points to an adaptational response to the colder climates of Europe, which affected their evolutionary history. In essence, the Neanderthals were an ancestrally cold-adapted species of human. 
Many, but not all, mammals that live in tundra and taiga environments tend to be stocky, short-limbed animals, because those traits help prevent heat loss. The large nose and big rib cage have been explained as a response to the cold as well, and studies indicate that Neanderthals relied heavily on nose breathing, taking in larger amounts of air that could be heated and moistened. Over time, Neanderthals moved outward from their European homeland, as far east as central Siberia and perhaps China and Korea, and as far south as Southwest Asia, and they brought those traits with them. Genetic studies have indicated that Neanderthals seem to have had a similar range in skin, hair, and eye colors to Homo sapiens, with some members having pale skin and others having a sort of tawny skin, some having blue eyes and others having brown eyes, and some sporting red hair and others having brown or blonde hair. There's very little research into this area of study at present, but it would not be surprising that Neanderthals had a range of surface features similar to our own, given their vast range across Eurasia. Paleoanthropologists have been slowly uncovering the behavioral repertoires of the Neanderthals, and we now understand more about their daily lives than we ever have before. For one, we know that they were capable hunters of large mammals. There is evidence that they used spears for group hunts, and that they may have had the capacity to throw these with some level of accuracy. One site in Um el-Tiel in Syria reveals a wild ass that had been speared by a Neanderthal in its neck, the angle of which suggests that the weapon was thrown. Most other times, however, these peoples would have thrusted their spears from a downward angle, with other fossils from Neumark Nord in Germany showing deer that were stabbed in this way. Along with equines and deer, remains show Neanderthals hunting woolly mammoth, rhinoceros, bison, wild cattle, and cave bears. As a whole, Neanderthals were opportunists, no different from the early foraging Homo sapiens. They were able to eat almost anything they found. But there was a capability for niche diets, that is, specific foods in specific places. Research has found that Neanderthal diets could include small land animals like rabbits and tortoises, marine resources like shellfish, mushrooms, and plant-based foods, including wild grains, berries, pine nuts, and moss. There's evidence for the regular use of fire and the first hearths at 450 to 350,000 years ago, and studies of preserved plaque on Neanderthal teeth tell us that they were cooking their food. To heat their hearths, they used wood only when available, otherwise they would use coal that was often brought from many miles away. It is now understood that Neanderthals made use of medicinal plants and fungi, as often many primates do, to treat illnesses, such as poplar leaves and bark for painkillers. A source for our stereotype of the caveman, Neanderthals did make use of caves whenever they could. Many fossils have been found in caves, and it is possible that these humans lived permanently in these natural structures. But they could make their own rock shelters as well, and there is even evidence that they sometimes paved the nasty floors of some caves with stones. Life for a Neanderthal would not have been easy, and the particularly harsh and cold landscapes of Ice Age Europe certainly gave them enough challenges. Many skeletons reveal that big game hunting was often close, or rather, too close for comfort. They must have had amazing pain tolerance, and several remains have been found of Neanderthals that sustained bad injuries, with broken arms and legs, fractured skulls, and other damaged bones. It must be kept in mind that Ice Age conditions would have been tough for any humans who faced them, so it would not be accurate to claim that Neanderthals were necessarily prone to a life of constant injury and more often than not, there are more remains of people who have no evidence of harm. In many ways, they were just as ingenious and resourceful as Homo sapiens. Neanderthals created a vast array of new technologies, including the first adhesive materials, glue made of birch bark tar that was used to attach stone points to thick wooden spears, and the first eating utensils, including toothpicks. 
There is even possible evidence that these peoples were constructing boats. Evidence of Neanderthal tools on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean suggests that the people had to have boated to get there, as the island was still far out at sea during that time. Neanderthal cultures consisted of a remarkable use of decorative elements that was not previously seen in earlier human species. We know that they were among the first peoples to use pigments on their bodies, including ochre, which is produced from a mix of clays, sands, and the inorganic compound ferric oxide. Ochre produces a distinct reddish-brown pigment, and we see traces of it on shells that bear puncture marks on them. This indicates that the shells were strung up on a lace of some sort, and that they were worn on the body as jewelry. Another site shows how Neanderthals selected some of the bigger and darker primary or flight feathers of birds of prey, and may have used them as some form of body decoration. Some reconstructions show these people wearing the feathers in their hair. As far as clothing is concerned, we're not too sure about that. The presence of scraping tools in their toolkit and the evidence of wear on their front teeth show that they at least made blankets out of skin and hide, where they held it by their incisors and would have pushed the scrapers along the skins. If they did wear clothes, they wouldn't have been tailored. The evidence for that only appears among Homo sapiens. It has been suggested that Neanderthals could also create visual art, and this has been put especially forward by the argument that a series of roughly 65,000-year-old cave paintings found in different sites in Spain were produced by them, mainly because Homo sapiens doesn't have a definitive presence in Europe until around 40,000 years ago. It's controversial evidence, but given that these people were creating jewelry and adorning themselves with ochres, it's not improbable. Like humans before them, Neanderthals used stone tools, and they have their own characteristic toolkit called Mousterian, named after the site of Les Moustiers where they were first recognized. What made these tools stand out was their technique of preparation that has been dubbed Levelois. Essentially, the right stone is selected and is napped at one side to produce a curved surface. Then the stone is struck at at one end until a flake is produced that matches the shape and size needed. This is repeated until the core stone is all used up. The shift away from the Acheulean tools to the Mousterian tools is noted by the sheer abundance and variety of uses these tools had. There were axes, hammers, knives, and scrapers like the Acheulean, but they were smaller and were actually reused as often as they could. There is a later toolkit called Chateau Peronian that has sparked controversy as to their attribution and legitimacy, because researchers are divided on whether those stone tools were made solely by Neanderthals, made by Neanderthals who were inspired by cultural borrowing from the first European Homo sapiens, or that the toolkit didn't really exist and was the result of a mistaken association of Neanderthal and Homo sapiens toolkits. We'll leave it to the experts to sort that out. What about death? In a larger context, when did humans begin to place greater emphasis on the deceased and on possible worlds beyond their own? This is a subject of human origins that has had its fair share of debate, and the evidence has always been too few and too ambiguous to argue for or against the presence of deliberate burials and belief in the afterlife in non-homo sapiens humans. Anthropologists Candace Alcorda and Richard Sossus have uncovered four key traits that underpin nearly all of the world's religions, and give us something to look for when we turn to the archaeological record. 1. A belief in the supernatural. 2. Participation in rituals by all members of a community. 3 a division between sacred and secular elements, and four, the capacity for all of this to be learned. Since the later members of the genus Homo did appear to have had the ability to think aesthetically and perhaps use more symbolic communication, it is very possible that the presence of religious thought was there, but this is something that we cannot confirm nor deny. For Neanderthals, there have been a number of remains that look like grave sites, 
where the dead are buried inside caves with a particular pose, including folded arms, yet nearly all of these have been contested by various researchers. It has been argued, for example, that these burials simply represent a need to remove a body without attracting scavengers. But then how come we don't see this sort of thing among previous homo species? We just can't say for sure. Of related interest is the fact that cannibalism appears to have been practiced by Neanderthals, with evidence that some of the deceased were actually eaten. The Neanderthal world was a truly amazing place, and we know that they shared it with other lost peoples, like Homo erectus, Homo naledi, and Homo floresiensis, as well as ourselves. But discoveries during the last decade have produced evidence that there were even more people around during those times. The most dramatic of these are the Denisovans, who were first recognized as a possible new species by the DNA sequencing of a little finger bone in 2010 found at Denisova Cave in Siberia. The genetic study done on this bone shows that these humans were distinct from Homo sapiens and actually were the closest relatives of the Neanderthals, having shared a common ancestor with them around 640,000 years ago. Since then, very few other remains have been found, though a fragmentary piece of a side of a skull was just announced on the 1st of March of this year, and we'd have to wait till the end of the month to hear more about it. We lack any significant evidence of culture, behavior, or even appearance from these humans. All we know is that they appear to have had a widespread distribution throughout northern and eastern Asia, as revealed by DNA studies of hybridization with Homo sapiens. More on that next time. Many researchers have suggested that two skulls found in Hunan, China may belong to the Denisovans, but we can't know for sure at this time, not without better skeletal or genetic evidence. Along with the Denisovans are two other mystery humans that were excavated in the lands of China that currently have no formal scientific species name. The first of these were found in Dali and Jinushan, where they sported Neanderthal-like skulls of a similar robusticity and cranial capacity. They seem to have lived between 260,000 and 130,000 years ago, and were people of large size. The second of these were found at the Maludong, or Red Deer Cave in Yunnan. They too were robust peoples, with strongly built skulls, though they were significantly smaller than the Dali Jinyushan humans. The remains have been dated to a surprisingly young age, only 14,300 to 11,500 years old, well contemporaneous with the first Homo sapiens in their regions. Who were these people? Who were their relatives? Where did they come from? Are they fossils of already known species? All good questions. The study of human evolution is full of such mysteries, but we all should be very grateful for the rich amount of information we do have about our origins. And with that, we must lay anchor to our river journey. In the next episode, we reveal the early history of our own species, Homo sapiens, and see what set them apart from all the other humans who shared their world. We follow their great population expansions across the continents, from their multi-regional origins in Africa to their settlement of Eurasia, from the overseas journey to Australia to the peopling of the Americas, it is a story of new lands, and thus, new histories. That's in this episode of On the River of History. If you enjoyed listening in or are interested in hearing more, you can visit my new website at www.podcasts.com. Just search for On the River of History. This podcast is also available on iTunes. Just search for it by name. A transcript of today's episode is available for the hearing impaired or for those who just want to read along. The link is in the description. And if you like what I do, you're welcome to stop by my Twitter, at Cheer. Thank you all for listening, and never forget... The story of the world is your story, too.